Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee, and very, very excited today. We're so honored to have our guest, Neil Donald Walsh. Now, before we get to his formal introduction and our conversation, Banyan Books acknowledges that although we have people joining from all over the world for these live streaming events, the physical location of Banyan Books is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Most of Banyan's events and podcasts are free, we welcome your donations to keep these programs accessible for all. Just click on the PayPal link in the show description below. Also, towards the end of our conversation today, Neil Donald Walsh will be taking questions from our live audience. So go ahead and get those ready. Type them into the comments or chats chat function on YouTube, and we'll get to as many of those as we can. Neil Donald Walsh has written... 39 books on contemporary spirituality and its practical application in everyday life. With an early interest in religion and a deeply felt connection to spirituality, Neil spent the majority of his early adult years thriving professionally, yet searching for greater meaning in life. He has said that this yearning led to a series of deeply personal spiritual encounters, which he experienced as direct exchanges with the divine a series of books titled Conversations with God, emerged from those moments and has been translated into 37 languages. Seven books in the series reached the New York Times bestseller list. Conversations with God, book one, remaining there for over two and a half years. Walsh presents online retreats and lecture programs for persons around the world focused on what he calls the most important question facing humanity today. That question, is it possible that there is something we don't fully understand about God and about life, the understanding of which would change everything? Today, Neil Donald Walsh is with Banyan Books in conversation about his book, The God Solution, The Power of Pure Love. The God Solution invites humanity to embrace a new global ethic based on a refined, and clarified definition of God. The book proposes that there is a single statement of spiritual truth upon which all the world 
religions could agree and which would birth a shift of spiritual paradigms around the globe of such magnitude that it would produce peace and happiness on our planet at last. If you'd like more information about today's honored guest and his work, you can visit his website, neildonaldwalsh.com. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm, warm welcome for Neil Donald Walsh. Thank you, Ross. Those are very gracious words, and I appreciate the opportunity to share this time with you. And I hope I, I could just invite your audience. Guys, if you're enjoying this kind of programming, uh, please do me a favor. Check that donation button, even if it's just a, a relatively small amount. But support this kind of programming. It means not just a lot to the people who produce these programs, but to all those around the world who have an opportunity to engage in the program and to watch it. So, you know, if it's even just a relatively small amount, make your donation and allow this kind of message to continue to spread around the world. Thank you, Ross, for that very nice introduction. How may I serve the moment? Well, thank you, Neil. Uh, just your presence is serving the moment greatly already. Um, you know, this this book of yours, you've written 39 books now and all wonderful work. Um, uh, people are very familiar with your Conversations with God series and your writing process in those books was very much a back and forth dialogue between you and the divine. This book, The God Solution, is a different format as are many of your other books. I'm just wondering if you could fill us in a little bit what your writing process is like for a book like this one. Well, I'd be happy to, Ross. What happens is I often wake up in the morning with a question or a thought in my mind. Uh, and, uh, and then I think, gosh, you know, I want to I explore that. Basically explore it with myself in a sense or explore it with, if I could put it that way, with my audience. So what happened uh, to me about two or three years ago now is I woke up with a question. If there really is a God, I mean, if there really is a higher power, why is the world such a mess? And why is the world always such a mess? I mean, why has it been such a mess for thousands and thousands of years? Why can't we just get it right? Or, or why doesn't God step in and, and help us get it right, stop us? It's just, just put a halt to all of this terrible, terrible behavior that we see all around the world. You know that we've had, uh, just to give you an example, we, we've had armed conflict on this planet for 92% of recorded history. What's that about? Why doesn't God just step in and stop it? And if we, if we won't stop it of our own volition, why doesn't God, in a sense, you know, cause us to stop it? Or is God just sitting up there looking at things going, Bush. sure wish they could do better than they're doing you know so what's the point of having a higher power if it's not going to be able to make life easier and better for us on this planet so honestly ross that was the i woke up with that question uh, about a year and a half or so ago and so i started writing I, st I started writing by actually asking that question i began to just you know ask that question what i call that question the god dilemma it's the dilemma we all have about God, those of us who do believe in, in a higher power. Oh, and by the way, not many people know, but um, 
sociologists have been going around the world for the past 10 years, taking a survey, asking a single question, a one question survey, but they asked people in virtually every country of the, of the uh, planet. The question was, do you believe in a higher power? You might be surprised to find that statistically 8.5 out of every 10 people said yes. That is 85% of the respondents said yes, they believe in a higher power. So there's a great irony here though, Ross, because while 85% of human beings from nation to nation believe in a higher power, we can't seem to come to an agreement about those beliefs. We can't find a way to even come up with a, with a single idea, a single statement that could encompass all of our beliefs, you know, under one umbrella, if you please, and could at least bring us together as a community of uh, God's people. So the result is that more wars have been fought on this planet in the name of God and for religious and spiritual reasons than for any other single reason. What is the irony of that? So many of us believe in a God and so many of us disagree about God that so many wars have been fought in God's name. So why in God's name is life the way it is? That's what I uh, started writing about uh, Ross and my process is I just sit down at a computer. In the old days, I did it by hand, writing you know, literally by hand on a yellow legal pad. But I found that I, you know, I needed to type it out because I type pretty quickly. I, I do 65 words a minute and the thoughts come to me too quickly. I get a little frustrated when I have to wait for myself to write something by hand. So I give myself permission to go ahead and, and type it out. And so I use the, you know, the keyboard to express whatever comes through me. My process, Ross, is that I, I ask a question like that and then I just allow myself to put down what is coming to me and what is coming through me. And what came through me this time was a, a book, not a huge book, it's not a huge, big, thick book. It's a relatively small book, but it, I think it's one of the most important books I ever wrote called, as you were kind enough uh, to show the audience, called The God Solution, The Solution to the God Dilemma. There it is. And it flows so beautifully. And it's the message is it's a very high ideal. Um, you you spoke about the God dilemma. Maybe you can just uh, describe for people what you propose as the God solution. I'd be happy to, Ross. Thank you for asking me that. Uh, what I was told, what I was given to be the God solution is that we need, in fact, to come up with a single idea, a single concept, a single statement, if you will. Just a simple sentence, just a, a, something upon which all the world's religions could agree. There are, here's another statistic that many people may not be aware of. There are over 4,000 religions being practiced on the face of the earth right now. Now, I didn't say 4,000 religions, you know, from the beginning of time, you know, throughout human history. I mean, being practiced on the earth right now, 4,223 faith traditions are now being followed by people on this planet to this day. Why, why that many different faith traditions? Because we can't agree on a single statement. We can't all come together 
uh, you know, on a, one particular statement, but we can all say, yeah, th this this statement summarizes and encapsulates and embraces the highest truth of our religion. So what I realized is that that would be the God solution. And I'd like to explain in a little while after I tell you what the God solution is, that is what the statement is. I'd like to explain why such a statement can be serviceable, why, why, why would help humanity. But the statement that I came up with was, that was given to me, what if all the world's people who believe in God decided to create a new definition of God? What if we decided that our new definition of God was a simpler two-word statement? Pure love. What if we decided to define God as pure love? Now, Ross, when I make this statement in front of an audience in the room, you know, a live audience in the room, somebody will inevitably get up in the back of the room and say, oh, you know, come on, come on, I mean, We've been listening to you for 20 minutes for you to tell us that the great revelation is that God is love. We all know that God is love. Even, even religions that have doctrinal differences and different dogmas, we all agree that God is love. That's what you came here to, to reveal? And I have to say to my friend in the back of the room, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not what I said. I didn't say God is love. I said God is pure love. Now my friend in the back of the room will say, okay, what's the difference? <laughs> the difference is that pure love needs, expects, requires, and demands nothing in return. Now that's spiritually, that's theologically revolutionary. The question before humanity then becomes, can we, do we dare believe in a God who de demands nothing in return for the love that God gives us, for the blessings that we've been given, for being there and for creating our species and for that matter, creating the universe. Dare we believe in a God who doesn't say, my way or the highway. Either you do it this way or you're going to be really sorry. You're going to be really sorry. Let me give you an example of, of, of what I'm talking about, the, the kind of thing I'm talking about, Ross. Uh, I was born and raised, and I don't mean this in any disparaging way, so please don't anybody get all upset. I'm just going to tell you a true story. Not disparagingly, just accurately. I was born and raised in the Roman Catholic tradition. And I'm so grateful for my Roman Catholic upbringing because it did bring me, it did bring to me a really deep-seated belief in a higher power, in God. Yeah, yeah, I believed in God. But it also taught me about a God who was judgmental, condemning, and punishing. To the extreme, Ross, because here's what I learned in the third grade. I was taught in the third grade, the priest would come into our third grade classroom once a week and teach us theology, Roman Catholic theology. They call it catechism in those days. So we, were, we were taught catechism. And this particular week, the, the, the catechism class was about the difference between mortal sin and venial sin. Now, for those of you who are not Catholics, 
you should know that Catholics believe that there is such a thing as called mortal sin, which is the worst kind of sin you could possibly commit. And if you die with a mortal sin on your soul, you're going straight to hell. I mean, it's, this is serious business. A venial sin was kind of like, if you please, a, a spiritual misdemeanor that God could overlook. I mean, he wouldn't send you to hell because of it. He would just send you to purgatory. Purgatory is like hell, only it's not forever. I've had a couple of marriages like that, but that's another story. In any event, in any event. Uh, so now the priest is telling us about the difference. And I said, I raised my nine-year-old hand. Father, Father, can you give me an example of mortal sins? You know, I thought he was going to say, you know, yeah, if you murder somebody or, or steal someone's life savings or some horrible thing. He said, oh, sure. It's a mortal sin if you miss mass on Sunday. I blanched. Because as it happened, that particular Sunday, I did miss mass. As it happens, no coincidences in the universe. I went almost every Sunday of my life. I rarely missed mass because I was a devout little nine-year-old Catholic boy. Went with my parents to church. But this particular Sunday was you know, the, the playground kind of World Series. It was the World Series of our playground softball team. And my teammates were saying, Neil, Neil, we need you out there. Need you out there in right field. You know, come on. So I said, okay. So I asked my parents you know, if I could just play baseball that one particular. My father said, okay, go ahead, son. So I played baseball that Sunday. As it happened, the Sunday before, and I hadn't gone to confession yet. So I said, well, well Father, I, I, God sends us to hell if we miss church on Sunday? And the priest said, well, unless you can, if you confess your sin in a confessional and you're forgiven, of course, then you're okay. But but if you die with that sin on your soul, yes, it's a mortal sin. You go straight to hell. If you don't think that will send a nine-year-old child who's taking in everything he's being told, especially if he's being told it by a priest, if you don't think that would make a nine-year-old child start racing to the confessional. And in our parish, Ross, they only had confession once a week on Saturday afternoons from like three o'clock till five. So I had, to, I had to go through the rest of the week and I'm, I'm, I'm looking both ways crossing the street. I'm making sure that nothing could you know, befall me because I thought, my gosh, if I were to die before Saturday, you know, and I went into, the, I made it to Saturday. I remember going into the confessional, scared out of my mind. I'm, I'm not making this up, I'm not exaggerating. I was nine years old, what do I know? I'm, I'm, I'm living into a nine-year-old fear of going to hell because I've missed church last Sunday. One week of my life. Talk about using fear to keep the, the pews filled. So I'm saying to the priest, Father, can you please forgive me? I, and, and I told him the whole story I just told you. And he said, he gave me his forgiveness. He did, he did his, you know, God bless him. And I'm sure he must have sought this poor nine-year-old kid. So, you know, I got out of the confessional, said my penance, because you're given penance in confession, prayers you have to say. And then you believe that God has forgiven you. But I'm thinking now, now wait a minute. Do we, is this the, as I got older, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, 25, 30, as I moved into my young adult years, I'm thinking, is this really the kind of God we have? I mean, truly, not to over, over make the point, not to overdraw the issue, but really? Do we really want to believe in a God who sends us to everlasting damnation for missing church one Sunday without a good excuse? 
So why this is important for us to embrace the idea of a God who would never do that is because it stops us from treating each other in the same way. Because guess what, Ross? Human beings in collectives, individually, in groups called nations, in groups called political parties, in groups called religions, you know, human beings treat each other the way we imagine and that we have been taught by our religions, mind you, that God treats us. And, and in Catholicism, Catholicism isn't the only religion that believes that God sends people to hell for transgressions. And, and, I, and I, I had to think, Ross, let me just, let me just figure out, if I wanted to consider this proportionally, just using proportions, let's call eternity, just so the mind can hold the idea, let's call eternity a thousand years, just so I can hold the idea. Now, if eternity is a thousand years, how many years is a lifetime? 20 seconds? 60 seconds? Two minutes? Maybe a day at the most out of a thousand years? And I'm being asked to believe in a God who punishes me for a thousand years for something that I did in the sliver of a time called this particular lifetime, one day out of that thousands of years. This is what we call justice. This is what we call a punishment in proportion to the offense. I mean, really? So if we were to believe in a God who is pure love, who doesn't need that kind of obedience, much less worship. <laughs> we call temples and churches and, and, and synagogues, and we call those places houses of worship. Houses of worship, as if we have a God who needs to be worshiped. Why not call them houses of reverence? A place where we can experience our reverence for the divine, fair enough. And we would want to experience our reverence for the creator and the maker of all things. But we don't have to worship God any more than we have to worship anybody on earth. We shouldn't have to worship anybody. I mean, what is God, some kind of a deity with an ego that requires us to worship her? And worship him, worship it, whatever we imagine God to be. So the God's solution brings, would bring all of humanity's religions together under a single statement that God is pure love, the kind of love that expects, requires, demands, and needs nothing in return. Ross, we can't even love the person on the pillow next to us that way. How can we imagine a God who loves us that way? I mean, we live with a person. We spend our life with a person. And most of us can't even love the person on the pillow next to us without need, expectation, requirement, or subtle but often spoken demands of that other person. Because we've never been taught how to love that way because we've been taught that love, in fact, includes demands, and if you please, commandments. Commandments. 
That's how you love somebody else. You issue commandments to them. So the God solution is to remove the whole idea of a God who would judge and condemn and punish anybody. But to replace that thought with an awareness that the creator of all that is, is the indeed the highest power in existence that needs nothing from us any more than we would need something from a two-year-old baby. You know, if your two-year-old child spills the milk at the, at the table, reaching for the chocolate cake at his birthday party, and there's, now there's milk all over the table and he's ruined the whole party, so to speak. What do we say to the child? Go to your room. You'll stay in your room for the rest of the summer. I'll teach you. Who would do that? Who in the world would? Well, you know who we are compared to God. We're acting like two-year-olds who have spilled the milk. Come on, guys. Embrace the God solution. Hold it as our new thought about God. Hold it as the answer to the question, is it possible? Just possible that there's something we don't fully understand here about God, about life, and about each other, the understanding of which would change everything. And if we take the idea that God is pure love and needs and requires and demands nothing of us, then we pull out from under us the foundation of our own behavior with each other. We can no longer say, hey, if it's good enough for God, it's good enough for me. I'm only doing what my religions tell me. My religions have told me to act you know, divinely, to imitate, if you please, the behaviors of our creator, to be godlike and to try to achieve divinity in my expression of my humanity. So I'm achieving hum uh, uh, divinity. I'm duplicating divinity when I judge, condemn, and punish the other person when they don't do what it is I demand and command and expect and need them to do. Let's now put into our experience, Ross, a new kind of love. Let's start with the person next to us. Let's just say to our beloved other, I love you and I need a demand I expect by requiring nothing in return. Because it's been made clear to me. If I only love you, if you give me back what I think I should be getting from you, then I'm not loving you at all. I'm simply loving myself through you. But if I love you, whether I get anything back from you or not, that's pure love. That idea would change the world. Overnight. I could, of course, be wrong about all of this, but I don't think so. One of the things I love about this book, Neil, is you put the responsibility right back on us as individuals, as a collective, rather than on God. For, what my, for much of what happens in our lives and in the world. As an example, in chapter 23, you write, so if the planet's ecosystem undergoes irreversible damage, will we once again fall back on asking, 
Why would a loving God allow such things? Or will we see that it is we who are doing the allowing? Such an important point. I'm just wondering if you can expand on what we need to understand about God's role versus our own role in being responsible for how things unfold in life. Thank you, Ross. I would love to. Uh, this is my awareness, at least. Again, I want to emphasize, I could be wrong about everything I'm saying here, but my understanding, because I ask God the same questions, the questions we all ask. In my understanding, I said, when I said to God, oh, you know, why don't you just fix it? Why, why do you allow these things to go on? And God said to me, well, why don't you just fix it? Why do you allow these things to go on? And I said, but, but, but you're the one who has the power to change things. And God says, but you're the one who has the power to change things. And I said, are you going to repeat everything that I say? And God says, are you going to repeat everything I say? Like that kind of a game we used to play when we were kids with each other. Repeating everything that the other person said. But this wasn't a joke. This was meant as a real dialogue. Because God said, Neil, clearly there's a huge misunderstanding with regard to my role in the life of your species. And for that matter, all the species of sentient beings in the cosmos. So here's my role. It was not my intention to create a kingdom of minions who simply do as I say, and then they get what they need from me. But if they don't do as I say, as I said, they get punished. My intention was not to create you as minions. My intention was to create you as creators of your own reality. To provide you with every tool you need to experience yourself as individuations of divinity. And so God's role is to place within every sentient being in the cosmos the ability, the understanding, the awareness, the consciousness, the power, if you please, to create and to experience your own reality individually and collectively. And you're doing that. You are creating your own reality collectively. You're doing it right now today. There's war all over the planet. There's economic strife all over the planet. There are divisions between people all over the planet. More alienation between people of differences than I've ever seen in the 80 years of my lifetime. I've never seen such alienation in my life as I'm seeing in the past five or eight years. What's going on? When did we decide that if you're different from me, then you're less than me? And who teaches us that? Again, please, not to make it sound like I'm anti-Catholic, but I was told as a Catholic that it was the only religion on the planet that would get me into heaven. I mean, I was told this. Non-Catholics, non-Christians do not go to heaven. I don't care how nice you are, how kind you are, how compassionate you are, how generous you are, how forgiving you are. I don't care. You belong to the wrong religion. What can I say? There's only one doorway. It has nothing to do with the kind of person you are. You're going to hell. You're not going to get into heaven because you just joined the wrong religion. Sorry. And now I know that there are 4,200 religions. So, you know, the odds of you picking the right one 
are kind of like against you, but sorry, Dems the rules. Is this really what we think God had in mind? Seriously? Or is it possible? Just possible that there's something we don't fully understand here. The understanding of which would change everything. Neil, in the second half of the book, you get into the how, the mechanics or the metaphysics of how we actually align ourselves with the energy of pure love and project it, bring it into the world. Um, and you also talk about, uh, you just mentioned this, and I, re I really think this is an important point, um, the, the need to clarify the often misused statement, you create your own reality, which often leads to what you call new age guilt. I'm wondering if you can explain just in a little more nuance how that teaching really is meant to be uh, used. I'd, I'd, I'd love to, the chance to do it. Uh, I'm not sure I can do it well, but I'll do the best I can. Um, I, I, when I found myself, I'm going to say, stepping a little bit away from traditional religious beliefs and stepped into a different kind of spiritual understanding, um, I began to hear from some teachers of what I called the new spirituality. I began to hear about you know, the process of manifestation. And I began to hear a lot of teachers say, you create your own reality. So then I began to feel guilty because I thought, you know, what part am I playing in creating the challenges that are being faced by human beings around the world? You know? Or for that matter, even my individual life. If I trip and fall down the stairs, which I did once, by the way. Uh, I mean, I mean, in a serious way, not a small little fall. I was uh, carrying my little puppy when he was just, just just after my puppy was born. That's 17 years ago now. He's he's now getting ready to leave the planet. God bless. But I remember the week he was born, I was carrying him downstairs because he hadn't learned yet, you know, how to run up and down the stairs. So I was carrying the little, the little guy down the stairs and so, and so, and so, and in both of my hands because he was squiggling around. And I, I failed to think I should really have one hand on the railing. So I misstepped and toppled down about 14 steps. It was not a pretty picture. Fortunately, my little puppy was okay, but I wasn't. I, heard, I didn't break a leg or break an ankle, but I, I did get pretty bruised up falling down those steps. Now I bring up the point to make to I bring up the I mean I bring up the incident to make a point, which is that I was told in in my uh, spiritual gathering that weekend, you create your own realities. I'm not like a new age guilt. Why would I create my falling down the stairs? Why would I create the tripping and falling and hurting myself that way? So then I realized, oh, most of the teachers of the idea that you create your own reality have not been explaining it thoroughly or completely or expansively enough. The teaching you create your own reality does not mean that you are and have been responsible for all the things that have happened in your life, negative and positive. It doesn't mean that you specifically and literally created falling down the stairs 
or even the positive outcomes, winning the lottery. You, know, you, you didn't create the exterior events of your life. So, Ross, the, the way I teach the statement, you create your own reality, is the way God shared it with me. When I asked about this subject, she said, Neil, Neil, it's really very simple. You create your own reality does not mean that by the power of your thought, you're creating specific outcomes in your life. Sometimes you can influence the outcomes in your life in your exterior world. That's true. But don't get, don't get the idea in your head that when bad things happen, it's your fault because you created it. You create your own reality has to do with the interior experience of the exterior events that are co-created by the lot of you. That is, Neil, the exterior events of your life, 99% of them are created by more than one of you simultaneously. Things are occurring in your exterior experience that involve usually more than one person. Even falling down the steps created by the person who was vacuuming the stairs the other day and left a little whatever it was that you tripped on as you fell down the stairs. I mean, we could find a reason why everything happens. So the teaching you create your own reality does not mean that you're responsible on an individual basis for the war in Ukraine, for what's happening in Israel and Palestine, for the terrific economic challenges faced by a huge percentage of the world's people, for the pandemic that we went through in, in 2020 and that some people are still suffering from. It doesn't mean that we are individually responsible for those outcomes. Then what does it mean you create your own reality? The statement means you create your own interior experience of the exterior events of your life. How you hold the events of your life in your interior is your reality. And that reality is based on your perception of the event itself, whatever it might be, because your perception creates your understanding. Your perception creates your perspective. Your perspective creates your belief. Your, your belief creates your behavior in response to what has happened. And your behavior creates your experience. I use a simple example when I'm giving a lecture, Ross, just to use a simple example. You, you, uh, you find out that you, you've been disinvited from a cocktail party or a birthday party or some you know, major celebration that you thought, sure, you were going to get an invitation to. Okay, person A says, darn, I feel slighted. My, my feelings are hurt. I thought, surely I'd be invited to that celebration. And person B says, wow, am I glad I don't have to go to that? I didn't, I didn't know how I was going to turn the invitation down. The exterior event is identical. It's the same exterior event experienced interiorly in an entirely different way. That's what's meant by you create your own reality. So... When exterior events occur in your life, look to see if it's not possible that there's something, especially if it's a negative event, 
not possible that there's something that could benefit you. Often I ask my lecture audiences, Ross, when I'm talking in front of a live audience, I will say to them, how many of you have experienced in your life what you thought at the moment when it was happening was one of the worst things that could ever happen? One of the most unwelcome events you could possibly create in your life. You just can't imagine this going on right now. How many of you have experienced just what you thought was the worst thing that could possibly happen at that point in your life? Only to find out two weeks or two months or two years later that it was one of the best things that ever happened to you. How many of you have had that experience? And Ross, 98% of the hands in the audience go up. Now, the difference between a student and a master is that the spiritual master knows that while the event is occurring. He doesn't have to wait two weeks or two months or two years to find out how that horrible thing turned out to really bring him benefit. That's the difference between a student and a master. So spiritual masters look at what's happening right here, right now, and see it in an entirely different way. Now, here's what's interesting. Metaphysics is very important here, Ross, because by them seeing it in an entirely different way while it's happening, they produce the event itself in an entirely different way and conclude the event in a way that's other than it might have been if they allow themselves to think that this was the worst thing that could possibly happen. That is, the way you hold the experience that you're now moving through in your life affects the experience itself. Energy impacts upon energy. Again, the example I use in the lecture is, you know, take boiling water and pour it over an ice cube which is simply cold water that's frozen. And watch what happens because the water will affect the water. It's two water, cold water and hot water, but you pour them together and you have a, a third kind of water, a different reality with regard to the water. That's how energy works. So if you receive the so-called unwelcome or uninvited unhappy event in your life in a way that allows you to say, okay, I'm going to hold this in gratitude. There's a, there's a benefit for me here. I have an opportunity here to demonstrate, to announce, to declare, to express, to fulfill who I really am. And we toss all of our positive energy into the experience itself. Watch how it changes many of the moments of your life. I could, of course, be wrong about all of this. But if you think that I'm the only person who talks about something as simple as the power of positive thinking, you haven't read many books. Thank you, Neil. I think we've got some nice questions coming in from the live audience. And if it's okay with you, we could address a couple of those. They better be nice questions because if they're not <laughs> nice questions, I'm going to get them. <laughs> You've been warned, folks. Okay. The first one here is from Marilyn. 
And Marilyn says, what do we do when happenings or circumstances in the world cause us to doubt with a capital D doubt? Doubt is the most important thing we can do. Never doubt that doubt can be beneficial. You know, my friend, it's people who have not doubted anything that they're saying or doing that have become dangerous to humanity. I don't want a, I don't want a leader who doesn't doubt. I, I don't want I, I don't I don't want that kind of person to be in charge of anything. So people who never doubt that what they're saying is correct. Some of those kinds of people, I'm not going to name names, but some, there's more than one. Some of those kinds of people are actually running for president of the United States <laughs> because they doubt that doubt is real. That is, they don't doubt anything they say. Whatever they say on any topic whatsoever is the absolute undoubted truth. Couldn't be wrong in any way, shape, manner, or form. So you know what, my friend? God save you from people who have no doubts. But if what do we do when the events of the world cause us to doubt? Step into the doubt. Because doubt is the doorway to your reason. To your willingness to reason it through. To think it through. To see both sides of the issue. To come to a conclusion about what could be true and what could not be true. And then to choose the truth that serves you at the highest level, so long as it never hurts, injures, damages any other individual, either emotionally and certainly not physically. So I love it when I doubt. And by the way, in case folks, in case you think that I've never doubted any of the words or the writing in the conversations with God books, let me make it very clear. I picked up my own books, turned to a page, read a few pages, and thought to myself, boy, boy, I wonder if that's absolutely profoundly true. I've doubted the content of my own books. And God help me if I ever stop doubting what I'm telling you. Why do you think, my friend, that I say at the end of every speech I give? I could be wrong about all of this. And I'm serious. So what do you do when doubt assails you? Step into your doubt. That's your thinking mind working for you on your behalf. Don't step away from doubt. And then think it through and conclude what feels true in your heart and true in your soul and true at the highest level of your mind. And I promise you nine times out of 10, you'll come out ahead. Thank you, Neil. And, and thanks uh, to Marilyn for that wonderful question. Now, I just want to remind people, you can keep submitting your questions here. There's one, Neil, here from Charles who says, is there an answer to the dilemma of not committing aggression or violence 
when there is a need to protect oneself. I wish there was one size fits all answer to that question. If there was a one size fits all answer to that question, we could start a, another religion. So Charles, I hate to try to, I mean, I hate to appear as someone who's trying to get out of, get out of answering your question directly, but there's, there's no answer that fits perfectly in every single situation. Sometimes we have to use. You know, I got to tell you, if somebody came into my house, you know, and made it clear to me that they were going to use killing force to hurt somebody that I dearly love, I would use whatever force was necessary to stop them from doing that. I would use whatever force was necessary to stop them from doing that. But here's the challenge. Most people who use that kind of force in response to life's events call all of their actions self-defense. When does, you know, there's a wonderful line in the Course in Miracles that says all attack is called self-defense. All attack is called self-defense. There's not a single country or nation on the planet from the beginning of time. There's not a single regime from the beginning of recorded history that's ever announced, we're going to attack this other country because we just want to attack them. Every single one has said, we're defending ourselves. We have to defend ourselves. So all attack is called self-defense. And so I think it's a matter of proportion. I think it's fair to say that certain self-defensive actions could be in the form of attacking another in response to being attacked, fair enough. But fair-minded, spiritually-minded people would have to say, how much is needed to defend myself? We're, we're facing that question right now, on the planet right now, in several places. Those questions are now being asked right now in several geographical locations on the planet Earth on this day of our life. How much defense is true self-defense and when does self-defense turn into more than is needed to defend oneself and becomes literally attacking of the other beyond that which is needed to defend the self? If somebody throws a pie in my face, do I throw them out the window? Or do I find a pie of my own? I'm using a ridiculous example, but to throw in their face. So I think my friend Charles, I wish I had a real definitive answer for you, but Charles, the answer I would give you is insofar as our response is proportionate to the need to defend myself or someone I love, 
insofar as my response is proportionate to that which is attacking, then I feel that it is, dare I use the word justified. But I don't think it's justified when the response far exceeds what is required to produce a defense. Thank you, and, and thanks, Charles, for that great question. I think we have time for one or two more. There's, there's one from Lisa who says, can we transform the pain we caused others in the past when they're long gone or beyond reach? It is grievous to see our earlier oblivion and their pain we could not see before. I promise you, is it Lisa? Uh, Lisa. Oh, Lisa. Lisa, I promise you. Take, take my word for this. When the soul of any human being leaves the present physical manifestation that we call their body and moves into what we loosely define as the spiritual realm, they understand everything. They are aware of everything. They are clear about everything. And they love all of life without condition. So I'm clear that I don't have to apologize. I'm not saying that I wouldn't. I do express my regret. But regret is not the same as guilt. To express regret for something I did or said to someone, now they're gone, they've left their body, or to use simple language, they've died and hopefully gone to heaven because there's no other place to go. To, to express my regret for that feels good to me and they are totally accepting of our apology and loving us for seeing that we choose to apologize, but they would never want us to feel guilt. Guilt and fear are the only enemies of man. Remember that always. Guilt and fear are the only enemies of man. So say your apologies, feel your sorrow, feel your regret for anything that you may have done or said that could have hurt the feelings or actually maybe even hurt someone physically in the past. And if they've left their body and they're now in the spiritual realm, I promise you, they are so far ahead of us in their willingness to embrace and to understand how that event could have occurred, that they don't even have to forgive us. Um, Lisa, please write this on your bathroom mirror. I was told this in my conversations with God. Write this, get a magic marker, you know, black felt tip pen, and write this on the mirror. Understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. Understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. So you don't have to worry about the spirit of your loved one forgiving you because they understand how it could possibly have happened that you might have done or said 
what you did or said. And one of the ways they understand is because chances are very possible that they too have done or said either the same thing or something close enough to it in their own lifetime. You know, when I've had people apologize to me while I'm still here, apologize to me for something they did or said a year ago or two years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago or 25 years ago, I look to see, have I ever done or said something even close to that in my own life? And the answer comes back to me almost always. Yep, I came pretty close to something like that in my life as well. So remember this always, Lisa. Understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. Therefore, you don't have to forgive anyone for anything they might have done or said to you. Simply understand how they could have done it. And you don't have to forgive yourself for what you might have said or done to another. Simply understand how you could have done it. How did the child, to go back to my original metaphor, knock over that glass of milk, reaching for the chocolate cake at his birthday party, and spilled milk all over the table? Because we understand that that's what people sometimes do, metaphorically speaking. There's no use crying over spilled milk. Lisa just put a comment just saying, oh, thank you. Relief. I experienced, I have- Lisa, I experienced the same thing in my entire conversations with God. I truly encourage you, if you haven't read all of the conversations, dialogue books, to give yourself permission to read them because I had the exact same experience you just described now. I would pick up the book and I would read something in there and I would say, oh, what a relief. What a relief. Thank you for bringing us so much relief today, Neil. And before we part ways, I'm I'm just wondering if you can tell people a little bit about what you're up to these days, things that they might want to uh, connect with you on and, and how they can get involved. It's really very simple. If any of you feel you'd like to reconnect or stay connected with the energy of the messages and conversations with God, simply go to CWG conversation with God, of course, cwgconnect.com. And at cwgconnect.com, I appear every single day answering questions at a platform called Ask Neil and offering insights and suggestions that you may or may not feel are valuable, but there you have it. So I can see you at cwgconnect.com. And my friend, thank you for the opportunity to share these moments with you. I hope it has served you for me to spend this time with you. 
Thank you so much, Neil. It's really been a delight and a, and a treat to have you with us today. That's a kind thing to say. And I appreciate you saying those words to me. Thank you so much. Nice to have been here with you. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com. <laughs>